Happy Saturday. It's January 8th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney, and we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. Thank you for joining us. Michael, you sound very chipper this morning. Something's got to be wrong then. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just happy to have my little peaches and herb moment, and by that I mean I'm reunited with you and it feels so good. I haven't talked to you really in two weeks. I know we've been on vacation. We tried to go fairly silent when we were away. We tried to get away from all things work related and reality related with varying degrees of success. How was your holiday? It was very quiet despite what I said in some of the previous episodes, which we recorded earlier. Brooke and I did not go to Chicago. We chose to reschedule that due to Omicron in our stockings. Not that we got it, but just it's an abundance of caution. So we stayed in New York, had a very quiet one. And we followed the Star East to not Bethlehem, but to Montauk and saw some friends there on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But you, for those of you following Ashley on Instagram, it was sun, surf, and sea, and sailing. It looked like idyllic. Yeah, it was heaven. We went to California. My in-laws live just north of San Diego, so we went to visit them for a while, and then we headed up to Malibu. Aww. I know. Aww. I know. Aww. It's the worst. Christmas in Malibu. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so great there. I mean, the lifestyle is absurd and so much fun. We went surfing and sailing. And you and it's... Geffen just opening presents on <laughs> Christmas Day, you know. No, but I did hear the most epic quote ever from someone on the beach in Malibu. They were like, yeah, we just bought this house here because our other house is just like, we can't deal with like dealing with being in the city. And I was like, oh, where's your other house? And it's like, oh, well, it's in near Malibu. I was like, oh, who knew? Near Malibu is apparently the city for Los Angeles. I love it. So the commute down Pacific Coast Highway 1 from like the house to the surf spot is too long in 15 minutes. So you need to buy one closer to there for $25 million. Just a, a little shack. Is that what the idea is? It was epic. Yeah. No, it's great. Look, I don't understand the lifestyle there and I love it. And I just want to know more about it. Los Angeles, please continue to inform and educate me about your ways because you guys really understand the key components of the good life. Well, we're back now in the saddle. Back in the saddle, back in the city, we've got weird weather, another variant, and kind of a bizarre mood. I mean, it's so weird. Like, the streets are very quiet right now. Very quiet. But, boy, you should have seen them over in Christmas, New Year's. Really? Dead ski. Really? Yeah. Did but, you guys um, go out at all? Well, I went to Nell's, and I was there till four in the morning. And uh... <laughs> but I should have known. By the way, our listeners know that we love Yokorota, but did you hear that Rita and Jody have a new place, the Commerce Inn? It just opened on Commerce Street. It's supposed to be good. I have been. How, really? Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Well, I went to Jody, very kindly invited Brooke and myself to a little friends and family soft opening. It was right after, right beginning, maybe a week or two before Christmas. It was just the bar area was open. It had some fantastic bar snacks, drinks, and it's beautiful. She took over the old Grange Hall. Grange Hall. She took over the old Grange Hall, which used to be the Blue Mill Tavern when I first landed on these shores. And it is a departure for Jody and her partner, Rita Sodi. They are doing food inspired by shakers up in the Berkshire area of Massachusetts. So, But 
boy, I got to tell you, it's delicious. We only had a partial menu. They only had a small tasting menu available. We already, already have our next date to go back there. And it's Okay, Michael, I was not invited to this. I'm upset and I need you to expand that reservation. David and I will come with you because I'm dying to go. Done. Thank you. How that we have addressed the most important matters of the week, which is our dinner plans. Then we'll get to the rest of you folks listening out there in a second. Sorry. Okay, let's talk about all the news. What a weird week it's been. It's like we've got Rochelle Walensky in the hot seat, which like this whole like CDC thing is cracking me up, especially all the memes about it. We've got chaos in Russia, potentially, maybe. We have the January 6th insurrection being revisited in myriad different ways. I'm tempted to start with Theranos, the trial on everyone's minds. Yeah, I think we should because we have, as faithful readers know, Rich Cohen has been covering and giving his perspective of the trial over the last 12, 13 weeks. This trial began and in the time that it began, we had the Jelaine trial began and concluded, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial began and concluded, and yet this one kept going and going and going. But of course, earlier this week came to a conclusion. She was found guilty on four charges, and we're going to have Rich here to give us his perspective on it all, right? Welcome, Rich. We've got Rich Cohen here. He has been following Elizabeth Holmes more than anyone should be legally allowed to do. Rich, thank you for your service, and we welcome you to the show. Yeah, I'm sort of just back from the Elizabeth Holmes wars, so it feels like. All right, so we know that she was found guilty. What exactly was she found guilty of, and how did we end up here? Well, basically, I realized this early on when I started looking at their case, which is because I was just following it, and you suddenly realize that the real victims here are the billionaire investors. And they tried to build the case to say that the victims were ordinary people who took the tests. But when you actually looked at the tests, she didn't get far enough to really hurt anybody with those tests. They, and they were so inaccurate that nobody believed them. And they immediately got retested and were told that the tests were wrong. So the victims were the investors, the Murdochs and the Walton family, all the people that invested a lot of money early because they thought it was going to be like another Facebook and they were going to make billions, billions of dollars. And she was found guilty for defrauding basically those people and not guilty for defrauding the victims because there hadn't been enough time to defraud the victims. Is this a miscarriage of justice? Is this the right thing being done? How do you interpret this? No, I mean, one thing that I found, first of all, the thing was in super slow motion. It took forever. So you think of how long that trial lasts and compared to all the other trials that came and went in the interim. And part of that is because of their COVID rules. They only had trials a few days a week. They had problems with the jury. But when it got to the deliberation, I feel like the jury took it really, really, really seriously. I mean, I've been going back and I've been reading for some inspiration, the Dominic Dunn crime stories in Vanity Fair. And I've just been reading all his OJ Simpson trial stuff and they were out for like four hours. I wrote a book about the guy who was sort of the first pirate in New York who was the last person publicly hung in New York, came out a couple of years ago, named Albert Hicks, and his jury was out for seven minutes. So this jury took this really, really seriously and went through these charges, and I think they were right. They figured out it's hard to prove, and she just, if you really started looking at it, she really didn't harm any of the people that took the tests because she didn't get a chance to test enough of them. She might have if it had continued on, but it didn't happen. So I don't think it's vindication of her or the government. I think it's her going down. It's her being guilty. And it's vindication of the government because this is a hard case to bring because you have to prove intent. So I always say the George Costanza thing. When George Costanza on Seinfeld explains how to beat a lie detector, he says it's not lying if you believe it yourself, if you don't think it's a lie. And that was kind of her defense, which is, yeah, it was all untrue, but I believed it too. 
And I was sort of victim number one. So that did not hold up. And she's, I don't know what's going to happen, but I have a feeling she'll go to prison for some time less than six months. Really? Okay. But she attempted to deflect the responsibility for the lies and for the fraud to her former CEO, who was also her boyfriend. And she talked in depth during her testimony about their relationship. And she accused him of some pretty serious charges, right? Some allegations of sexual abuse and emotional abuse. The jury ultimately didn't find that compelling, it seems. No. I mean, my wife is an assistant district attorney and my brother and sister, are both former federal prosecutors, and they talked to them all about this. And they all said this is sort of the kitchen sink defense, which is they tried, they pulled every lever, they tried everything and the, to get her off. And the last thing was this idea of abuse. But if you looked at it, it didn't really hold water because she was the boss of that company. She was running it, not Sonny Balwani. She was out there publicly. She started the company before he joined and he left. So I think that the jury dealt with it the way you deal with it. If somebody said something a little embarrassing, like in a meeting, you might just continue the conversation as if it hadn't been said. I don't think it had any weight. No one really bought that. And it was such a flip in her image and how she had sold herself, which was as this person completely in charge, pursuing their own vision, pitching their own product, micromanaging, and then to sort of turn around at the last minute and say, I was just somebody else's puppet. And no one really bought it. It's trying to have it both ways. The conversations that I've had with people over the last few days, are, and I want to get your take on this, is was Holmes singled out from the boys club of Silicon Valley for prosecution. There's been a lot of guys on Silicon Valley who've probably faked it till they make it and faked a lot of people out of money. But is there a sense that maybe as a woman, she, why her? I don't think it's a gender thing. Now, maybe I'm naive, but I think that prosecutors, basically, we kind of give them too much credit about how they decide what to go for. They go for targets of convenience. And the thing that happened to Holmes, okay, in my opinion, is she got so much publicity. She was on the big story in The New Yorker, whatever the year was, on the cover of Fortune or Forbes, I forget which one, on the cover of Time. She was going to change the world. She kind of like is Icarus. She flew too close to the sun. Her work wasn't solid. So when you get that much tension and that much praise, and it's not solid, there's a lot of jealousy and a lot of animosity, and people start wanting to take you down. And she made herself a huge target. And what happened is, is people from within her own company were irritated at her, and they started leaking stories, and they went to the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal had these great stories where they had a series where they sort of explained what was happening, and the prosecutors are reading the same stories. And so are their bosses, and they're feeling pressure coming from above. And then they start to look into her. That's how I think it happens. The journal basically gives them a roadmap. I've seen prosecutors reading the wedding section of the New York Times about some guy who's got all this money. They're like, where the hell does all this money come from? And they're doing a search on the guy. That's how these stories come about. They're driven by the media. The prosecutors are part of the same soup and they're reading the same stories. And if you're a prosecutor and the story's in the paper, that's how you make your career. My first book I wrote was called Tough Jews About Jewish Gangsters. And But all these gangsters went to prison, died in the electric chair. The one guy who didn't was Meyer Lansky. And his thing was he wanted to stay out of the news. A gangster in the newspaper is a gangster in trouble. Because he knew even then that the prosecutors were reading the newspaper and going after the gangsters they read about. They weren't geniuses. They were following the media. And I think that's what happened here. They followed the media. She got too big, too fast. It was too much of a good thing. It brought her down. So, Rich, who's the winner in all of this? Well, I really do think, as I was going through this, because I really believe she did something wrong and she should have been convicted and they were right going after her, and I, got, and I still think all that. 
But you look at all, there's a saying, I don't know who said it, but the real crime or shame is not what's illegal, it's what's legal. And you look at somebody like Purdue Pharma, that you're talking about, who corrupted the FDA, corrupted all these people, millions of people addicted, and the real harm done. Everything they did, they're paying a huge amount of money, but going to prison is something else. And you feel like they get, it's targets of opportunity, it's low-hanging fruit, and it becomes a way to give people something to feel vindicated about. Well, the real stuff, the real big stuff just goes by because it's too big to take on. So the winner in this, probably the lawyers who are able to bill hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Well, Rich, thank you so much, not only for all of your diligence and reporting on this, but also for your insight into this trial. And we couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me about it. Thanks, Rich. Have a great day. You You too. Bye. All right. Before we move on to other matters, Michael, we should talk quickly about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. So her attorneys are now clamoring and attempting to call a mistrial on this because did you read this in the paper this morning that one of the jurors on her trial has given an interview to the Daily Mail talking about his own past history of sexual abuse and how that informed his decision making here, which is pretty surprising, frankly. When I saw that news yesterday, I thought like, that's strange. I'm surprised. Like, that's not caused her mistrial. Then, blink. Sure enough, an hour or so later, her attorneys were talking about this. And look, I got to say, whatever you think of Maxwell and what came out, it is a sort of strange element that went undisclosed. Because you know a story that's really complicated and crazy and involves courts, but not American courts, we've got in this week's issue, is a story we're calling Real estate and divorce, Italian style. You've read this one, right? I have read this one. It's very complicated, but if you're in the market for a new house, there is a pretty spectacular one that's coming on the market very soon. Yeah, there is a Roman villa. It's been priced at $531 million. And you can have it because it's now being pushed to the auction block because of a family feud featuring Roman nobles and a Playboy centerfold slash widow. So the basic history is, this is a 30,000 square foot fixer-upper, dates to the 17th century. It also features a Caravaggio on the ceiling, the only known Caravaggio on a ceiling anywhere in the world. And what happened is, in 2018, the Prince of Piombino, when he died, he left three sons, two ex-wives, one widow, and an inheritance battle so intractable as Rachel Donadio reports that in September, a judge cut the Gordian knot of lawsuits and said, you know what, we're going to put this thing on public auction, and here it goes. It's going to auction where it could be yours. Maybe. Probably not, but I suppose in theory. Where is it located, Michael, in which neighborhood of Rome? It is located on a giant parcel of land, which is so big that back some decades ago, they sold off a chunk of it, which became Via Veneto. Wow. One of the chunks that was sold off, there was a smaller family, Palazzo, which is now, if you know Rome, that is the U.S. Embassy. So it's pretty centrally located, but it's a super complicated case, made more complicated the fact that Princess Rita, as she is known, the prince's widow, she, under Italian law, can live there as long as she wants. Sons, by previous marriages, want her out. They've gone to court. And it's a total, as we might say in Italian, molto complicato. It's going to be, it's even unclear that if this 
auction goes through, there's still a lot of questions whether she can actually be removed. As for her, she just keeps saying she's looking for a big spender, as she told Rachel. Maybe if Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk stopped looking at the moon and started looking at the earth a bit, maybe one of them would come and say, let's save this beautiful place. Hmm. Turns out that the anti-eviction laws in Rome also apply to princesses and very wealthy ones at that. Who knew? But you brought up something I wanted to talk about, which is Jeff Bezos. Bring it on. I don't want to talk about space. I don't want to talk about Amazon deliveries. I definitely don't want to talk about cardboard boxes, but we have to talk about this guy's New Year's outfit. Now, this is a story that we've been pondering in airmail for months and trying to figure out the right way to get in and to report around it. But the new public profile of Jeff Bezos is so fascinating to me. For the past few years, he's been with his new lady love, Lauren Sanchez, his new partner, and they're very close. And the two of them have embarked on some sort of a covert public relations campaign. She launched an Instagram account. They have launched this Bezos Earth Fund together, which is with what I believe is a $30 million endowment. $20 million endowment? Chump change. Yeah, chump change, something like that. And then they posted these photos of themselves at some ridiculous 70s-themed New Year's Eve party where they're wearing, she was in some kind of a halter jumpsuit. He was in a very tight shirt. It's like watching this guy's midlife crisis writ large on the global stage. It's totally fascinating. What do you make of it? It's a little like William Randolph Hearst with Marion coming under the spell of Marion Davies. Like, just as like, what? But love is blind. Love is blind. Anyway, a lot to talk about here and a lot that we're going to keep talking about, especially as this guy seems to keep throwing money into the wind with these fairly ridiculous initiatives. Okay, well, if looking good is top of mind, which for some of us it is, for some of us, we're just trying to get through the day. We have help in the form of Linda Wells. Linda is a storied beauty editor. She founded Allure magazine 25 years ago and has been at the forefront of this industry ever since. She is now our much beloved beauty columnist here at Airmail. The third installment of her column is dropping in this week's issue. And we are thrilled to have Linda here reporting live from an exotic locale to tell us all about what's on her mind as we delve into this new year. Welcome, Linda. Welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. So Linda, first of all, tell us exactly where you are. Oh, physically right this second? Yeah, we need (laughs) it. No, mentally too. (laughs) Mentally? I'm mentally very de- apart from the world. I'm at St. Bart's and it's heaven. But I've got the curtains closed and lights out so I could be anywhere. What we don't want to tell people is as the new beauty and wellness columnist, that's the office for you. <laughs> right, right. Come on down. Because you need to be sort of tranquil and just like in a spa all day. So there you go. Right. I'm in a wellness state of mind and this is a place. <laughs> a lot of sunscreen now, I have to say. That's the only downside, but boo-hoo. Okay, Linda, what's your SPF? 50 minimum with a hat and a top that's got SPF 50. So I'm wearing a beekeeper's outfit, essentially. (laughs) That's how you keep your skin looking so great. Now we know. (laughs) Right. You've never seen someone so pale in your life, but yeah. Oh, oh. I'll send you pictures of my legs. Right. I've seen Michael's legs. We play tennis together. It's scary. (laughs) Love you, Michael, but you know what I mean. Oh, please do. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, Linda, here we are in January. We're going to talk about your column in a minute, but I need to know, do you buy into this New Year's resolution wellness thing that it seems like everyone's talking about right now? How does Linda Wells tackle a new year? 
I do not do that. I just think that you're setting yourself up for failure. And I'm not that person who joins the gym January 1st and quits on January 4th. It's just, I mean, who's joining a gym right now anyway? But yeah, I'm not a New Year's resolution person because I've failed so many times and I just don't want. Failure is bad for your wellness. That's my theory. Ooh, I like it. We're going to crochet that on the pillow in the office. (laughs) There we go. Right. Cross-stitch that. Yeah. Done. But I can't also can't anticipate going back to the gym. It just feels too germ filled. And I'm not a germ phobe at all. Well, I kind of agree with you. And I'm getting a dog for that reason. I'm like, oh, if I have a dog, then I'll be forced to take it for walks four times a day. So that's a type of fitness. <laughs> oh my God. I thought that's why you have children. <laughs> well, that too, actually. So you can run after them. Exactly. Oh gosh. Yeah, I know. I used to always say to my kids, let's play the lying down game where mom lies down and you guys move around. Let's play the quiet game. Who can be quiet longest? Right. That never works. So Linda, let's talk about your column this week. You delve into the wild world of eyelashes. How did you get interested in this topic? I've seen friends who have eyelash extensions and I always was mystified by it because they look great at a party. But if you see them in the wilds of Alaska at a fishing camp or in a workout place, I feel like they look very silly and kind of so over the top. And then then I read about how false eyelashes have become such a huge phenomenon, particularly during the pandemic. And I thought we have to discuss this because no celebrity in her right mind would go out with regular lashes. And so there's this amping up of everything. And I noticed on TikTok too, there are always person will put on false lashes on one eye and nothing on the other. And they look as if there's something wrong with the natural lash. So I thought we've all become so accustomed to seeing this exaggeration and I wanted to explore the thinking behind it. When I first noticed it was even at my local grocery store, right? In the checkout or be at Starbucks and like, because all you can see are eyes now. So I think women, it's my theory was always like, this is the one thing I can accessorize. And I'd see these women with like one inch caterpillar coming off their right. eyes and, and it was right. beautiful. And it was very striking. So you're like, oh, that's so-and-so. I know her, but it was a way of sort of, you can't do the lips, you can't do the cheeks. So what else do you have to do, right? You're right. It's because everyone's wearing masks, there's so little to play with. And then really when you're isolated, you're doing Zoom calls. And so, and you're on social media and because all those things require more amplification and exaggeration in order to just be visible. So your usual routine is just not enough. Okay, Linda, while we're talking about the usual routine and masks, let's discuss this mask knee situation. How are you dealing with this? (laughs) I'm so over it. And also every time I wear foundation and then put a mask on, it rubs off my nose. I have this clown nose thing. Any tips, please? I wish I could tell you because also what's really disgusting is when you take your mask off and there's makeup inside it, which is... Yeah, you're absolutely right. I wish I had an answer. I think that the key thing is to try to wear a more long-wearing makeup, a long-wearing foundation. I don't find them comfortable, but other people do. So I think that you put it on, you let it dry if you want to put some powder on, but that's a lot of makeup. My solution is to walk everywhere and then you don't have to wear a mask. Yeah, or just be like Michael and I and exist solely on Zoom where the filter is automatic. Exactly. That Zoom filter is good. I have just two questions from Brooke, my wife because she was keen. And just to go back to the eyes for a second. So some few years ago, we were at a black tie event out of the country. She wanted the false eyelashes put on. I just want to say I applied them. I did a damn good job. I'm calling you next. You're good. With the tweezers and the glue, I laid them in there. Got a lot of compliments. Jenna Lyons, who was the 
creative director and designer of J. Crew for a jillion years. She has a new line of false lashes called Love Scene. And the reason she brought them out is because she has a medical condition that causes her eyelashes to fall out. And she said that if you do it three times, you can master it. And she figured it out. Now, I've only done it once and I did it and it was just so ridiculously bad. I tried to keep going and think, I'll just wear them out. And I thought, oh my gosh, I look like an insane person because they're popping off. But presumably you can learn to do them. And someday, even though it's not my New Year's resolution, someday I'll learn how to do them. And Michael, I will come over and put them on you. I'd like to be there for that. Right. I'll, I'll be ready for, for drag race then. <laughs> That's right. It's about time. All right. Well, Michael, we could talk to Linda about this all day, but the good thing is now we can call her anytime we want because she's a columnist for us. So Linda, you should probably block us because we have many more questions. <laughs> can I ask one more question before we go? Oh God, here we go. Just one more, Linda. I'm into it. A lot of men out here listen to morning meeting and we all know that they're a challenging group to reach sometimes in terms of health and wellness and maintenance not beauty, but we call it maintenance. What is one thing you would suggest, recommend any guy can and should do that's just to incorporate into his daily morning regimen that will make a difference? Oh, sunscreen, absolutely. And I know that sounds so boring and so kind of like, okay, your vegetables, but I'm shocked at how few men wear sunscreen or they slap it on in this really arbitrary way or they only wear it when they're going to the beach or they're doing something where there's going to be a lot of sun exposure. And if you apply a SPF moisturizer to your skin, you will look infinitely better. And it just is sort of so basic that men have to do it. So that's like step number one. I think that men could indulge in a concealer, but I know they never will, or a lot of men won't. I always feel sorry for men that they can't use concealer because it's the greatest thing ever. I use emotional concealer a lot. <laughs> right. There are lots of concealing. You're suggesting a concealer on my eyes. So <laughs> I just want to clarify for the listeners out there. Think about a literal concealer instead of the figurative one. <laughs> all right, Linda, well, we'll let you get back to your wonderful time in St. Bart's. Please, we look forward to all of your reporting on the latest and greatest wellness and spa trends. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you. And do call me. I won't block you at all, I promise. Thank you, Linda. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, Michael, we've given you plenty of new ideas. Let me know when those false eyelashes arrive at your doorstep. I might be wearing them right now for all you know. I can see you right now. If you're wearing false eyelashes, then I need to get glasses. I've got my false eyelash, my Harry Styles pearl necklace, and a very sort of Queen Elizabeth cardigan set. So it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's very anti-Bezos. <laughs> it's very anti-Bezos. <laughs> if he really wanted to be a baller, like show up like that, okay? Here we go. All right. Well, before we head off into the weekend, anything you're watching, loving, reading about. Well, before that, it's a good transition into a bit of criticism, a, a critical analysis we have this week, courtesy of Jim Walcott, a favorite writer this week. And it details, everyone talked about succession, I'm crazy about it, blah, blah. Okay, here's my question to you, Ashley. Do you know how many viewers turned in for the season finale of Succession? None. No idea. Mm, just over one and a half million. Okay. Now there's a show on Paramount Plus. It's called Yellowstone. Have you heard about it? I've heard a lot about it. Okay. Do you know how many people turned in for its season finale, which aired this past Sunday? 137 million. 
10 million. Okay, 10 times as many viewers turned in for that. And yet, people really don't sort of talk about it, write about it, but it's created by Taylor Sheridan, who has sort of, over the last few years, created this kind of whole world for Paramount+. Plus. And we had Jim take a look at it, why, where he stars Kevin Costner, who Jim loves, as he says, he's displayed his humor and that comic timing and phrasing he'd best displayed in Bull Durham, having deserted him. It's a smart contextualization of a show that hasn't got a lot of attention, but this empire that Taylor Sheridan is building, he's just spawned a spinoff, 1883. He's got another one coming, and he is contracted by Paramount Plus, I think, to produce five shows over the next three years. So if you're wondering, what is everyone talking about with this show, Yellowstone? Really good look at it from Jim. The Daily Mail wrote about it a few days ago, and they called it Paramount Plus is non-woke Western, as if this is some type of a virtue. But I think part of the success of this show is that it's of interest to many different types of people. Like, it's not a show that's, especially in the U.S., where our audiences are so polarized, it's not just a show for the left or just a show for the right. Like, there's a little something for everyone in here. Look, who knew? Kevin Costner is apparently at the peak of his powers at this point in his career. He looks damn good in it, too. He does. He does. You know who else is kind of at the peak of their powers is Keanu Reeves. Have you seen the new Matrix? I haven't. Oh, dude. It's actually great. I really liked it. We're not going to talk about it here as like a think piece because it's not. Is it better than that piece of dog food, Just Look Up? Have you seen that one? No, I have not seen this. What do I need to know? Not to interrupt you, that's the Adam McKay thing, which I couldn't even finish. But tell me about Matrix. Well, you know, like, look, it's not a think piece, right? It's just kind of a delicious romp into territory that we thought we knew, but it feels kind of prescient for these times. And Keanu Reeves is great. Oh, you know what I saw over the break, which I had been meaning to see for months. I'm so late to this. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it, but French Dispatch. Yeah, I watched it too. What do you think? I would call it French Mismatch. (laughs) Oh, no. How so? I mean, it's so beautiful to look at, but... I just was, I guess, I mean, sad because I felt like the stories didn't hold together. It was beautiful in so many ways, and yet I felt it was a little almost like a macaroon. It, it, lots of colors, and yet I didn't feel full at the end. How about you? Wow. Interesting take. Yeah, I had a sort of similar response, which is like, obviously, I can't resist the charm of the homage to the New Yorker and the Kansas factor. I'm from Kansas. I love that. Great acting. Conceptually, it was so great. But I thought when you have a film that's so visually compelling and so stimulating visually, all you kind of want to do is look at it because frame by frame by frame, there's just so many details that you don't want to miss. But then when you layer on top of that an excessively verbiose script that's also kind of hard to follow, like... Your brain just implodes. Like No, I get it because your eye is scanning every scene he takes you through. The camera's moving, the things, the details, like all these layers he wants your eye to look at because he's the guy's not just a writer, director, he's probably this OCD production designer. And that's always been part of his the power of his work. But boy, yeah, you're right. It just was another part of me thought if he had just focused on one story. I thought the Jeffrey Wright chapter was pretty great too because because Jeffrey Wright is so damn good. Oh, he's so damn good. I mean, I liked the Francis McDormand as Mavis Gallant one because I'm such a Mavis Gallant super fan and I've, you know, she doesn't get a lot of credit or airtime anywhere and honestly never really has except for in the pages of The New Yorker. So that was a treat to see. But again, it was so inside baseball that like I kind of felt like I left and my husband was like, we should order the companion book. But still worth watching because it's more inventive than so many other things out there. Look, I left thinking I would love to see what a pared down Wes Anderson movie would look like, right? Give it like the Francois Truffaut treatment with like 30% of the dialogue that it currently has and just let us focus on, you know, each frame unfolding. 
Just remember how stripped down Rushmore was. Exactly. It was so stripped down. Success gives access to bigger budgets. Bigger budgets give access to like, and I'll add another layer and I'll add another layer. Instead of just having Jason Schwartzman drive around in a go-kart on an empty parking lot, you can build a set. No, 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 no. In the realm of great directors, we lost two major talents in the world of Hollywood and cinema this week. Peter Bogdanovich, who died at age 82, and Sidney Poitier, who died at age 94, both of which had long and very illustrious careers. It's interesting we're talking about Wes Anderson and, uh, you know, one of the directors that was influential on Wes when you read about him was was Peter, not for his breakthrough films, which were The Last Picture Show as well as Paper Moon, which were probably made him a, a titan of 70s cinema, but for one of his sort of smaller moments, his film What's Up Doc with Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand, which was his take on a screwball comedy that has influenced West and other directors. Anyway, a titan of film. He was in that league in the 70s with Lucas and Spielberg and all all those directors who started to revolutionize Hollywood that Peter Biskin wrote about. I can't recommend you take some time this weekend to do a little Peter Bogdanovich film treatment of your own. You can find all those films on on Apple and Hulu and other places. To know a little bit more about Peter Bogdanovich, the man, we have a wonderful story in the issue from... Our boss, Graydon Carter, who was a friend of Peter's and who knew him intimately. Of course, we love Peter best as a contributor to Airmail. He had a story in an issue just a few months ago. Uh, but Graydon has known him for many years, and he, he gives really some unique insight into what made him not only such a, an effective director, but also a treasured friend and colleague. And yeah, back to Sidney Poitier. We lost Sidney Poitier this week, who was, as many people know, the first black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor, that was for Lilies of the Field. He you know, went on to make In the Heat of the Night, as well as uh, The Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis, uh, two fantastic films that I highly recommend you watch this weekend as well. Uh, came from an extraordinary background and uh, for many years was one of Hollywood's grand men. Uh, I should also say, also one of Hollywood's grand men, You know, he rose to prominence also, it's important to note, in the civil rights movement when he was beginning to make headway in the U.S. In in fact, many people sort of in the heat of the night saw that as a a lens on his perspective. Uh, I know also people are fans of one of the great comedies, which is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, along with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. All great suggestions. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend full of film. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us. <laughs>